We are in a series uh, called The Covenant Community, and we'll be doing that through March. And what does it mean to be in the covenant community of faith in the local church? Josh last week talked about the attractiveness of being part of the covenant family of God that began uh, there uh, in the Old Testament, and now it's expressed through the local church. And I want to talk about uh, this aspect that we have on the wall there of loving God together. What does this really mean? Because the Bible says the greatest commandment in all the scriptures is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if I were to ask you the question, how do you love God, what would you say? How do you love God? Wow, this is great. Greatest, greatest commandment in all of Scripture. We say, how do we do it? Uh, if you love God, keep his commandments. Spend time with him, right? Those are, those are ways we've been told to love God. The problem is, if I say, love God, therefore keep his commandments, spend time with him, what happens when you don't want to do that? Has anybody ever not felt like obeying the commands of God? Raise your hand. The rest of you, I have no hope for you at all. Titus chapter 2, I want to go there. It says, For the grace of God that has appeared, that offers salvation to all people, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The grace of God has given us salvation. This grace, it says, teaches us to obey the commandments. I want to talk to you today really about the role of grace uh, in this command of loving God together. Uh, Because the Bible actually says grace is actually what teaches us and helps us when our wanter doesn't want to spend time with him, doesn't want to keep his commandments. So first of all, uh, this is not working, so Hunter, you, I just have to point to you if that's okay, all right? Uh, first of all, I want us to know this fact simply that God loves you. I can't really talk about you loving God without really understanding that it starts with God loving you. And God loving you is the greatest news in all the world. Ephesians 2, 4 says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And when God showed his love to you and you responded in salvation, you became part of this covenant community. What is the local church? It is a group of people who covenant together to journey on this journey of loving God together. And we are the group that's loved by God. Now, sadly, though, I think in the last 10 years, it's kind of caught me off guard a little bit, but I would say that um, this truth people have really struggled with in the last 10 years. As a pastor, I hear this all the time. I don't really know if God loves me. And I really kind of struggled uh, with, you know, where is this coming from? Was, is God not clear? I mean, it says over and over and over again in the scripture that God loves you. 
I like how Juan says, if you open up the Bible and you don't see God loves you, you're doing something wrong. Do we think that God's mean and he's out to get us? Has he not been good to us? But I think it has something a little bit more to do with us, maybe perhaps, than it has to do with God. Uh, I have four, my wife and I have four children. And uh, yes, three of them are with us this morning, so I have to be very careful what I say. We suit our kids all the time. There is nothing you can do to get us to love you more. And there's nothing you can do that would make us love you less. Nothing. And I don't know if they always know that because you know what really the rubber meets the road is when the kids get in trouble. That's when love becomes questioned. Um, Yes. (laughs) Do I have an amen? Uh, It was about three years ago, one of my sons who will remain unnamed um, told me that he wanted to go down the street, go to the school and talk to some friends. And, and just, you know, I always, my wife and I decide not to play detective, except when the Jesus tells us to play detective. And it's like Jesus said, play detective. So I just got on my phone and I tracked him. And he was going the opposite way of the school. And, you know, when, you, when your kid lies to you and you catch him and you know that Apple's not lying to you, it bothers you. And, like, your temperature just starts to go up, right? Well, by the time he actually walked back in the door, my temperature was way up. You know, and I meet him at the door and I said, come right over here. And I said, walk over to me. And I frisked him from head to toe, just like the cops. And I found what I was looking for. And I won't tell you what it was. But I dropped my first F-bomb as a parent in my entire life right there in the foyer. I was so mad. And I just started giving him a lecture. I don't know if you ever had an out-of-body experience, but in the middle of the lecture, you're actually kind of wondering, what are you doing here? Like, what good is actually happening? But you're still, like, you know, going because you don't really have a plan B, right? <laughs> but I remembered at the time when I was in high school, I told my dad I was going somewhere. And I was driving down Sheridan Boulevard, and I was with some people, and a car of girls pulls up, right? And they started looking at us, and we started looking at them, and we came off the stoplight, and they pulled in front of us, which basically meant follow us, you know. And I was like, I'm in, you know. But then at the next light, the car in front of her car of girls stopped too fast. The light turned red, and they slammed on their brakes. She slammed on her brakes, and I slammed on my brakes too, too late. And I ran into the back end of her car. So we never got to where we were supposed to go because the cops were called. But I had to go home and show my dad the busted out grill on the front of the car. And at that time, my dad dropped the first swear word I ever heard my dad usher in his life. And when he did it, he just, he just said it and he walked back into the house. And the message that I got communicated to me was this car is more important to me than you. And so I have to sit there and, and I, I've learned as a parent that in the middle of those moments, It is wise for me to continue that conversation all the way through and to make sure that my love is reaffirmed to them, that my love is not based on whether or not they perform to my expectations or not, because that's when they begin to doubt. And I think this is actually where I think Christians are struggling, not really with that God loves them, but how could God love them if they are this way? All right, I am not getting any action here. 
So can you, okay, right there. John Owen said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. We cannot live our Christian life not knowing that God loves us. I don't think it's that people distrust the gospel. I think people feel like spiritual failures before God, and they believe that God's love waxes and wanes based on their behavior. It's not that there's a lack of God's love, but that we do such a poor job of loving him. But if you live in constant fear that God does not love you because you're not all you're supposed to be, you are going to have one miserable ride in the Christian life. So how does love actually work? Well, first of all, we are to love God. Okay, let's, God loves us, now we're to love him. We talk a lot here about loving our neighbor, but let it never be confused that far greater than love of neighbor for us is loving God. Because when, when we love God, the Bible says we will also love our neighbor. And the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. He's actually quoting the Shema here that Rochelle read in Deuteronomy 6. Love him with everything you've got. I like what the Bible Project says when it says, you know, what does it mean to love him with all your strength? That's not your might. It's, it's the word when, when God said he created the world and it was very good. It's that word very. It's much good. It says you love God with your muchness. Like it is everything you have. It is as you walk, by the way, as you uh, walk down the road, as you converse, you are loving God with everything and you keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 6 is we're to observe them, to keep them, to obey them. They're to be on our hearts. We teach them to our kids at all times. John Wesley said uh, in his sermon on love, what is it to love God? He says to delight in him, to rejoice in his will, to desire continually to please him to seek and find our happiness in him, and to thirst day and night for a fuller enjoyment of him. I ran this definition by my wife in Champlain yesterday as I was preparing, and they're like, that's a great definition of love. And I said, do you feel that way? And they're like, eh, not most days. I mean, do you really thirst day and night for a fuller enjoyment of Jesus? <laughs> I wish I did, right? I wish I loved like that. See, we don't, we, don't, we don't feel like we meet the standard of what love really is. I like when Jesus, they said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, like if somebody offends me, how many times do I have to forgive them? Even seven times? He's like, no, you have to do it 70 times seven. You know what they said? Oh, Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> you are telling me to do something here that I, I can't possibly do. Martin Luther King, we celebrate him this weekend in his book, Strength to Love. He talks about, you know, the hardest command in all of Scripture is to love our enemy. How do you get the strength to love your enemy? How do you change your wanter? So we actually live this up and down life of Christian love. It waxes and wanes. We're bombarded by other lovers. And so we actually then move into one of two paths of how we actually do this. The first one is I call it the performance path. We believe, and this is where I think most Christians live, we believe our, our performance impacts God's love for us. If we do really good, he'll love us more and bless us more. And if we do bad, he'll love us less and punish us. We think that our behavior dictates God's level of love uh, for us. Maybe you've had this happen. You wake up in the morning. Uh, you know, my job, I have to ask people for money. Uh, in our journey of loving our neighbors. So if I were to wake up in the morning 
and I get up on time, I eat a good breakfast, I sit down and I have enough time to do my quiet time, I go to work and my first interaction with, at work is awesome. Somebody comes in and asks me a question and I speak out of my devotions. I mean, I just feel like a really good Christian by like 9 a.m. And if that fundraising meeting is at lunch, I'm ready to go. And I'm pretty sure I've done all I've needed to do to get a yes out of that donor. But if I wake up late and I shove the apple in my mouth as I'm driving down the road, I don't have time to get my coffee, I go into the office, uh, the first problem that comes at me, I get irritated and frustrated and I start saying some things that are not Christian. Uh, and I'm just irritable all morning long. And I walk into that donor meeting at lunch. Do I think my odds are less? 100% I do. Because we have been taught that we are saved by grace. We are justified by grace. But we are really sanctified by works. We really... Uh, God's, whether or not I get the money at lunch, is contingent upon my actions that day. Having trusted in Christ alone for salvation, we have subtly and unconsciously reverted to a works relationship with God in our Christian lives. We recognize that our best efforts can't get us to heaven, but we do think they can earn God's blessing in our lives. And our Christian culture reinforces this. I would say most sermons you listen to, you could basically sum up as, do better, try harder, do these things. That is a works-based sanctification. That is just preaching law. We're told to go to church, read our Bibles, pray, give in the offering, serve the poor. And when the, when the 60s and 70s happened, and the great revolutions happened in our culture, uh, the religious community, the Christian community came so freaked out, they added a ton of rules to what it meant to be a good Christian. I mean, movies to facial hair to purity culture to music you listen to. No matter what you did, it's like these were the mores and you had to live by those or God was going to judge you. It was all the intention of keeping people from the world, but a performance-based theology crept in and it became a religion of do's and don'ts. I have to do this or God will judge me. Brian Chappell wrote a book called Holiness by Grace, and I like what he says. He says, you know, there's the great doctrines of the Reformation uh, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola fide, uh, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. But he says, this is sola bootstrapa. <laughs> it is by my bootstraps alone that I become a better Christian. On the other side, the prosperity gospel arose and said that I could actually do things to affect God's blessings. Not only did I not do things to not get judged by him, but I could actually move his hand by my behavior. And we end up thinking we could coerce God. If we behave well, he's obligated to bless us. I do something to get his favor. I have this transactional relationship with God. So that's fine and dandy as long as I'm perfect. As long as I keep all the commandments and do all the right things. But I then live a Christian life motivated by fear that I deserve judgment or that I won't get the blessing that I'm demanding of God. And I would say this is a bankrupt way to live your Christian life. The truth of the matter, brothers and sisters, is if God blesses you, it is 100% because of his mercy and grace. It has nothing to do with what you do. There is nothing you can do to get God to love you more, and there is nothing you can do to get God to love you less. Say that with me and use the word I. There is nothing I can do to get God to love me more, 
and there's nothing I can do to get God to love me less. The Apostle Paul walked, when he was writing to the Galatians, he said this, have you begun in the spirit and now you are trying to obtain your goal by human effort? This is the performance path. But I'm going to say there's a second path that you can walk and that you should walk, and I call this the grace path. The grace path. This is not performance. This is how God's grace actually empowers you and enables you to live the Christian life and to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, if I were to ask you a definition of grace, what would you say? Grace is? You get what you don't deserve. Anybody ever heard the acrostic? God's riches at Christ's expense. It is the undeserved favor of God. That definition of grace is actually true. But if you actually read through Scripture, there's another aspect of grace as well. And I think this is what is, is mostly undiscovered. That, that grace is actually God's power that works in us through his spirit to be and do good. This is sanctifying grace. Grace was not just given to you at salvation as pardon and forgiveness. God's spirit comes and lives inside of you, and his grace works in you. So it can be God's unmerited favor and God's divine power to you through the spirit of God. If what I'm saying to you is new, I do want to commend to you these two books. These, these really change, these lay out the theology of what I would call a grace-based approach to your Christian life. And I think they're the ones that, lay, if you want to dive deep, I've read both of these books. I'd highly recommend them. Uh, Bridges was quoted earlier. Jerry Bridges is the one who came with a quote, there's nothing you do to God love you more, nothing you do to get God love you less. So I would, I would encourage you with these resources. But look then at Titus chapter 2, our original verse. The grace of God that has appeared that offers salvation to all people, it teaches us to say no. What is the it there? It is the grace of God. The, the saving grace of God is then that grace, then that teaches you to say no. And you need this grace in your life. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We do not stand on our performance to get better and to get God to like us. We stand in daily grace. So the sanctification chart should look like this. I'm justified by grace, but then I also live my Christian life based on grace. We are sanctified by the daily grace of God. So then how does this work then in loving God? If you were to write something down, this is what I would actually have, encourage you to write down. So number one, God loved you in the gospel. Okay, Jesus paid it all. He purchased your forgiveness and every blessing you will ever receive, he purchased for you at the cross. Rest in that, that God loves you. You should not struggle with this. Number two then, you respond with a heart of gratitude. This is what the, the parable of the 10 lepers, you know, when God healed them all and one came back. This is a grace motivation that was enacted when they saw how beautiful the healing of that leper was, he responded with gratitude. So you respond with gratitude and your obedience is then motivated by love. When you actually see what God did for you in the gospel, 
you are grateful and your obedience is not motivated by fear and by judgment and by trying to coerce the hand of God, you are motivated by this love for him. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, God, the Christ's love compels me. This is not Paul's love for Christ. This was Christ's love for Paul. This is what drives everything I do is the love that God has for me. So you, you, then, you then obey God as a result. Can you imagine a covenant community where everybody was not motivated by fear and guilt, but was by motivated by the great love that God had for them? It is unstoppable. Then the next step is this, you activate means of grace. I'm going to get into that in a bit. And then the Spirit transforms you into a lover. Bridges in his book calls this part dependent discipline. And I like that, that uh, description of it. Because here's what happens at this point in your Christian growth. You can fall into one of two ditches. The, the one ditch on this side is I would call it the passive approach. The passive approach, you may have heard it as just trust God and he'll take care of everything else. Or let go and let God. This doesn't require any action on your part at all. You just sit and soak in the love of God and something happens. But then you have over here, you have what I call the self-discipline approach. This is read your Bible, pray every day, and everything will be okay. You actually do the disciplines of the Christian life, uh, and you do that regiment, and God will bless you and you will change. But can I tell you this? I don't care how disciplined you are. Disciplines are not the source of your spiritual strength. Jesus is. And it is the ministry of the Spirit to apply the disciplines to your life. So, so how can you best understand this? In the Scriptures, in the New Testament, they often uh, use like a farming illustration. So think of planting trees. Yeah. <laughs> Jerome, when you go plant a tree, what do you do? <laughs> and then what does God do with the tree? God makes it grow. Do you know there's nothing you can do to make a tree grow? Like fundamentally, you can provide the conditions, you can provide the environment, right? You can do the things, but God makes it grow. Now, if you didn't plant the tree, right, if you didn't do all the things that Jerry was talking about, Jerome was talking about, you, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't grow either. So you have a part and God has a part. Your part, uh, I'm going to call it as the means of grace. Now, the Reformers talk about the means of grace basically as uh, the sacraments of the church and the reading of the word. I actually think and believe that when you enact spiritual disciplines, that those are means of God's grace in your life. This is you actually doing the digging of the hole, putting the tree down there, creating conditions, and singing songs to the tree. These are means of grace. Richard Foster probably had the landmark book on this, Celebration of Discipline, and he categorized the spiritual disciplines in three categories, the inward disciplines, the outward disciplines, and the corporate disciplines. When you engage in these activities, what you are doing is you are you are stepping towards God and you are saying, God, I love you. And you do the works of spiritual disciplines 
uh, to show your love for him, not to gain love from him. You know, if you have good days and bad days, I want you to know your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need for God's grace. Right? You need God's grace all the time. And then what is God's part? God makes you grow. God is the one who changes you. The, the keystone verse on Christian growth is 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is it, right? I, my part is I behold God's glory, and as I'm doing that, the Spirit of God changes my wanter. It changes my character, Martin Luther King, when he says love your enemies, the way to do it is not say, I gotta love my enemies, I gotta love my enemies, I gotta love my enemies. No, you gaze at Christ. Look at all the times in Scripture where he loved his enemies and he turned the other cheek. Gaze at that, meditate on it, think about the enemies God has placed in your life. And say, Spirit of God, I, I just get rage when I think about these people. you got to change my heart. I don't even know how to think about loving them. You are not going to get there by human effort. The Spirit of God is going to have to change you as a person. And he will. I have a video, a short video I want to play to maybe, maybe little give you something to remember and to kind of like take this conversation to uh, the next level. And I watch this video clip and I... Haven't got it in my head for two months, and I'm going to share it uh, with you. Okay, not bad. Besides being cold, name a reason you're shaking. You said, <laughs> scared. Survey said, <laughs> name something that no one wants okay, to see. Okay, turn to one minute and 40 said, seconds on the. Call. Survey said. <laughs> right there, yeah, you're almost there. Right there, boom. Got it. did okay. She got 184. China, you need 16 points to win. Okay. I'm going to ask you the same five questions you can Hold ask. Hold on. Okay. Holy Spirit, activate. Oh, no. Holy oh, Spirit, oh, activate. No. Holy Spirit, activate. 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 Oh. All right, let's go. 11 years has never happened before. <laughs> Holy Spirit, activate. Holy Spirit, I said, okay. Come on, you can do this. See what, next time you're down at the DMV, Holy Spirit. How about the time you're sitting up there taking a test you ain't studied for? Holy Spirit. All right, everybody, everybody together, ready? Holy Spirit, activate. Oh, everybody, come on, Jerome. Ken? Anybody got the spiritual gift of dancing? Want to show us how to do this really well? Jocelyn, stand up. Holy Spirit, activate. Yeah, Holy Spirit, activate. All right. Thank you very much. I guarantee you, for the next two months, yeah, Rhodes. 
uh, that's going to go through your head. And I'm actually glad. Now, if she was sitting there and simply saying that because she's like, I want God to bless me, right? I'm just rubbing the Holy Spirit rabbit's foot. Worthless. If she actually was deeply troubled, afraid, nervous, couldn't think, right? And she in that moment is realizing she can't do this, then it actually is good. And to tell you the truth, I wish I was her. I wish the moment in my life when, when I needed to realize that I needed to depend and to rely upon the spirit and the grace of God, I wish my life would stop and I would sit there and go, Holy Spirit, activate. Holy Spirit, activate. Because I can actually have a really crappy morning, get mad at the world, sin like crazy, and I can walk into a donor meeting and I can go, Holy Spirit, activate. Because you know what? Of my own self, I can't even pull myself out of my funk that I'm in to try to put on a positive face for this donor. You have to do something in me. I think this is actually what the idea of pray without ceasing means. You know, as we walk through our entire Christian life and realize how much, how little control we have, or how much, how little we are affecting it, and we could just say, Holy Spirit, activate. God does not make his action does not make your work unnecessary. It just makes it effective. We always like the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In the context of that verse, Paul is talking about being content. He's not talking about I can do anything. He's saying, man, I've been full. I've been hungry. I've had a lot. I've had a little. And I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't have a contented spirit the Spirit of God is the one who did this in me. Paul says in Colossians 1, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he works within me. So in closing then, how does this actually impact us as a covenant community? I just wrote down a few things. There's a number of applications. The first one I want to say is this. In part of a covenant community, when it comes to loving God together, by the way, we have to do this together. We have to preach the gospel to each other every single time we're together. We preach from the pulpit. And by the way, every Providence sermon is essentially the same. God's word says this, you can't do it, you need Jesus. Every sermon's the same, right? That's what it should be. Every sermon should be that way. But we must preach the gospel to each other all the time. When we're sitting there on Sunday mornings and we see someone discouraged, we need to pour the gospel of God's grace and favor and power into their life with our words and our presence and our prayers. But then we also need to point it out. We need to point it out when we're getting off track. This is why when Paul walks in and sees Peter no longer wanting to eat with the Gentiles. And he goes over and he eats over uh, with the Jews only. And other uh, members went over and sat with him as well. And they were being hypocritical with their lives. Paul came out and confronted them and said, you are not walking according to the gospel. We need to point it out in each other's lives when we're, when we're straying from our love for God. But then Barnabas, the Bible says that when he went up and saw Antioch, when he arrived, he saw the grace of God. And what did he do? He rejoiced and encouraged them all to abide in the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas's role was to encourage people to love God with everything they had. But we also pick each other up because we're going to fall. 
The Bible says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either falls down, one can help the other up. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. But then we have to partner with each other in suffering. This is actually where the rubber really meets the road. Because when we enter suffering, it is like a grenade goes off, there is smoke, there is shrapnel, there is pain, there is noise, there's a ringing in our ears. And what do you need? You need the covenant community to come around you to really speak into your life the love of God, right? And also to sit there and walk with you as God begins through his spirit to sanctify you and to turn you into something else. I've been in the same community group for 14 years. You know, Josh talked last week the illustration about the old westerns where you had Pa, the good guy on one side living a solitary life, and the posse of the bad guys who had community. And this was way more powerful. Can I tell you, in the covenant community, my CG can kick any posse. You know why? Because we're centered on righteousness. The most powerful force in all the world is love. Not doing dirt, not getting in a posse. The Christian community, the power of love is what transforms the world. My CG is my ride or die group. I mean, they know this past Wednesday, I walked in, or Thursday, I was cynical, wasn't I? <laughs> I mean, I was like, ah, I just met with pastors, and I was like, I've about had it, you know? Um, another person was worrying about if they were deconstructing their faith and if we would accept them, you know? And I thought, man, there's no greater way to love God for the long haul than to be in a covenant community of people where you are known and they can walk with you through the ups and downs and remind you of God's great love that he has for you. When John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, he said, it is grace that has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. I need a covenant community around me for this grace to lead me home because I want to walk into heaven's gates knowing I love God together with a group of people. We're going to close and Will's going to come and sing Jesus Paid It All, that old hymn. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all for my salvation, and he wants to continue to perform the work in me until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that in our minds as we walk out today, for those who've lived a legalistic Christian life, living in fear and judgment and coercion, that they would fall into the lap of your grace. Lord, that those who are far from exercising the spiritual disciplines, the means of grace, that they would see these not as duties, but as just avenues of blessing in their life. Lord, that this day of individualism and us moving away from each other, that we would even move closer and tighter. And this grace that we've experienced in your salvation will lead us home as a covenant community. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing Jesus Paid It All. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come down here. And if, if you need prayer in your life at this, po this point, by the way, prayer is a means of grace. Prayer is essentially me saying, I don't have this figured out. I need a brother or sister to help me and encourage me. And that is God's grace working through the covenant community. So as we sing, if you need prayer, come forward. Then we'll close our service.
I hear the Savior. 